Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. It's so good to be back with you. Um, I had a great time. I was teaching up in Oregon for a week, and, uh, but I am so thankful for Pastor Savon and the word that he brought over the last two weeks. It was just straight fire. So I am so thankful for he and our other staff members who genuinely love you and love Jesus. And it is just uh, great to partner with them. So my name's Ryan. If we haven't met yet, I'm really grateful that you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, welcome to you as well. I want you to try to imagine something that probably won't be all that hard. I want you to imagine yourself sitting on your couch watching TV. Only imagine that the year is 1969. The date is July 20th. And 650,000 other Americans are gathered around their television waiting with bated anticipation. See, it was about 10 years previous that then-President John F. Kennedy stood before the United States and said, we will be the first nation to put a man on the moon. And in the culmination of a few hundred thousand people's work, July 20th, 1969 was the day. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong had landed on the moon with their spider-like spaceship. And a few moments later, Neil Armstrong would utter those now famous words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Yeah, you've heard it, right? But I'm more interested in the first meal that was eaten on the moon rather than the first steps that were taken on the moon. Because before Neil Armstrong ever got out of that spaceship and took those first massive steps, there was a period of time where he and Buzz just had to wait. And Buzz was prepared for that moment. You see, he had brought communion elements with him, commissioned by his church. And in those waiting moments before Neil and he stepped out of that space shuttle onto the moon, he sat in the absolute sheer terrifying quietness and he poured that juice into a little chalice. He would later write that because there was about one-sixth the amount of gravity on the moon as there is here on earth, that the juice just started to climb up the sides of the little cup. And it was there on the moon, July 20th, 1969, that he took the bread and he ate it. He drank the cup, the first meal ever eaten on the moon was communion. This picture of what Jesus taught his disciples to do. The the night he was betrayed, he instituted this meal. It's the subject of Leonardo da Vinci's now famous painting of the Last Supper, completed in 1498, one of the most famous paintings ever done. And now we sit here in 2022 holding these, looking like they're Walmart prepackaged versions of the bread and the juice, which begs the question, What in the world is this meal all about? The subject of art celebrated on the moon, given by Jesus himself. What is this meal all about? 
And let's be honest, can we really call this a meal? I love the way that historian Chris Gertz put it when he said, there are very few things that I understand as little and love as much as communion. And I think that captures the mystery. That, that invites us into this glorious, beautiful mystery that Jesus gave us this meal to remember his sacrifice. If you have your Bible, will you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? We are back in 1 Corinthians. If you're wondering, did we ever start it? Yes, we did. Um, at the beginning of this year, we started what will be a year-long series through the letter of 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Right, you're dialed in. Great. We took a little break for the summer, and now we're back, and we're going to dive in, and we are going to finish out this book over the next few months that we have together. So let me just catch you up as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. At the beginning of chapter 11, Paul started to address what happens when the church gathers together. You might remember that passage of scripture. It was about head coverings. Does anybody remember that? Okay. Remember how we solved all the world's problems during that message, okay? Answered all the questions about head coverings, right? Well, really, the passage is about the prayer and prophetic work of the church when it's gathered together. And Paul's going to continue on in exploring what it looks like for the church to be gathered together. And specifically, now he's going to dive into what we call the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Are you there? Right on. Let's roll. Here's what he wrote. He said, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Quick, quick time out. Some passages of scripture are exhortation, they are an encouragement. This is a bit of a rebuke, okay? This, is a, this, is, this should be read a little bit heavily. That's the way it would have fallen on the Corinthian church. They're out of joint, they're out of alignment with the way of Jesus and Paul's calling them out. I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. It, for... In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. Stop there. Now, Paul in that last line isn't saying, like, listen, I'm really glad that there are divisions. That's a good thing. He's saying the divisions are actually causing the people who are of genuine faith to rise to the surface because there's such a stark contrast. But he uses this phrase all throughout this first section, come together, come together. And it's as though Paul's saying, yeah, 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 you're together physically, like you're in proximity with one another. But we all know that it's possible to be together physically and yet to be divided spiritually, right? To be right next to each other and yet to be at odds with one another. My guess is those of you who are married have gone to bed some nights like that. We are close to each other, and yet we are divided. And Paul has written about divisions a lot in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Let me remind you, in the very first chapter, verse 10, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now, that's a pretty high bar. Can we just admit that, right? And that there be no, what, say it with me, church, no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Unity is of ultimate importance because if we are divided, we will eventually be destroyed. No church can survive disunity, 
No marriage can survive division. No nation can survive on the long term divided. No, no, no. Unity is so important because division always, always, always eventually destroys. And so here Paul makes it, this, this point is fascinating. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And I think what Paul's saying is no church is better than a divided church. Like it would be better if you just didn't come together at all if you're going to come together and fight. That's his point. And so where did this division show itself most prominently? Ah, at the table. Keep reading. It says this, verse 20. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says you're calling it that, but that's not what you are doing. Now, here he uses this term, the Lord's Supper, but there's a number of different monikers that we use for this exact same meal. What, what are some of them? Throw, throw some out. Communion. Sure. What else? Eucharist. Yeah, Eucharist. That's actually derived from the Greek word eucharistia, and it means, does anybody know? Thanksgiving. It means Thanksgiving. What else? Any other monikers for this meal? Sacrament. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we call it the table, right? Capital T, capital T, the table. Um, in the book of Jude, it's called the love feast. Who wants to bring that one back, right? I'm not sure if our attendance on those Sundays would go up or down, right? Just depends on where you're at, right? But yeah, the love feast. Now, in my opinion, no term is better or worse than the others, but at Emmanuel Faith here, we often use the term the Lord's Supper. We often use the word communion, as well. And listen to what Paul said next, verse 21. He said, for in eating, and here's the problem that he's seeing, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so immediately we are launched into a very different world than prepackaged COVID-friendly communion elements, are we not? Right? It was very different in the first century. Uh, A few things that you might know. One, it was a full meal that they would gather together and eat. Uh, It was a meal that people brought their own food to, and evidently, their own wine to, and evidently, a lot of their own wine to, right? It was a feast, it was a festival, and then finally, the meal that was supposed to bring them together actually revealed the divisions that existed among them. The very thing that was supposed to unify them actually showed that they were a very divided church, The very thing that was supposed to remind them that the ground was equal or level at the foot of the cross showed them also that it was very slanted at the communion table. Because it turns out that there were some people who were wealthy and they could get off work early and they got there and they set up their food and they brought a ton of it and they were eating and they were drinking probably a little bit too much and they were celebrating when people who didn't have quite as much money had to work all day and then would come in at the very end and be like, what's going on here? See, the divisions of rich and poor were seen at the communion table in Corinth. 
Those are natural lines that people often divide in, but in the church, they are supposed to be covered up by the grace and mercy of Jesus that we are all found in. And so, and so, people in Corinth were looking for connection. They're looking to be reminded that they are part of a much bigger whole. And what happened at communion was the very opposite of what was supposed to happen in the church. See, as human beings, you probably know this, but we have a longing to be connected to other people, right? Just raise your hand if you do. Even if you're the most introverted person in the world, my guess is that you have a longing to be connected to other people. That's why social media networks are so wildly popular. Did you know that there are 2.9 billion users on Facebook? There are 2 billion users on WhatsApp, 1.2 billion on Instagram, and 528 million on Snapchat. We are longing for connection. And we will go about it in any way we can to try to find it. And one of the most painful experiences that we can have as human beings is to be rejected where we expected to be welcomed. To be pushed to the periphery where we thought we were in the center. And that's exactly what was happening at the communion table in Corinth. And see, here's the truth of the matter, friends. In the church, there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. A way that provides a pathway for unity. A way that says we are all in this together. And the connection that we long for most ultimately is found in the table that he, Jesus, prepared for us. And that's what this passage is all about. The truth that Christian community is formed at the communion table. This is where our family is formed. And every time, you guys, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are reminded that we are part of a much bigger whole. And there should be a gravitational force at the middle of the table that not only pulls us towards Jesus, but as it pulls us towards Jesus, also pulls us towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I love the way that pastor and author Tim Keller put it when he said, when you take the Lord's Supper, you are doing it with brothers and sisters, with family. This bond is so life transforming that it creates a basis for unity as strong as if people had been raised together. Keller says, what happens at the table ought to create a bond as strong as the familial bond that you were designed to have. That people you grew up with, that kind of closeness is supposed to be created at the table. See, friends, this is the place where our preferences are overridden, where our divisions are healed, where our convictions are realigned, where our hearts are united as one. This is the reason that Jesus, when he was leaving his disciples, didn't leave them with a theory. He left them with a meal, that it would bring us together. And that's exactly what Paul does. He starts to unpack the different ways that this meal uniquely brings us together. Let me point out a few of those as we go on. Verse 23, verse 23. He says, for I, what? Say it with me. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. He goes, I received it and then I stewarded it and I passed it on to you. 
So over the last few weeks, we've said, listen, we need a number of volunteers in our kids' ministry and student ministry and young adults. We need people who are going to take what they've received and then pass it on. Friends, this is the way that the faith continues to move forward. If you have received from God, you are equipped by the Spirit to pass on what you've received. I love the way that the psalmist puts it. He says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. (laughs) And so I think that there's some of us in this room who we need to start imagining ourselves not as the people being proclaimed to anymore, but as the people doing the proclamation. Like it's, it's our turn to carry that baton. It's our turn to run that part of the race. It's our turn to share the goodness of God with others. That's exactly what the apostle Paul did. He goes, what I heard, I passed on to you. Now, there's a lot of debate about how the apostle Paul heard this. Because he never had a person-to-person, face-to-face conversation with Jesus. Certainly, he had firsthand revelation when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. But we're not quite sure what he means by what I received from the Lord Jesus. Some people think it was by direct revelation. Others would say, no, it's probably from Matthew, Mark, Luke, from those who were around Jesus and then heard and they did the passing on. After all, the Lord's Supper is recorded in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're not exactly sure, but we do know that the church gathered has celebrated this meal from the very beginning. You might even say that it's tradition or you might even say that it's tradition, right? Tell me anybody, all right? Yeah. <laughs> wow, Tevi got a round of applause. But here's the deal, here's the deal. The church has never been about tradition for tradition's sake. That, that's not what, we are not about tradition for tradition's sake. We are not about trying to cultivate a sense of nostalgia or pulling us back to the good old days. That is not why we take what we've received and pass it on. That is not why we cultivate a sense of quote unquote tradition. We look back so that we can be formed by truth and then look forward to live with purpose and make an impact in this world. I love the way that Gustav Mahler, the great conductor and composer, put it when he said, tradition is not to preserve the ashes, but to pass on the flame. So good. Nobody else thinks so. So good. Not to preserve the ashes, but to pass on the flame. See, friends, there's this sense of rootedness that grounds us. And certainly... Our worship at this service is quote-unquote modern, but our faith is ancient. We aren't doing anything new or novel. We aren't doing anything out of the ordinary. We are deeply rooted in the reality that Christ has lived and died and rose from the grave. Our faith is built not on an idea, but on an event. He was betrayed on the night he was betrayed. He took elements similar to this and he gave them to his disciples. We are connected, friends, through a shared story. A shared story. And while it's not new or novel, it is always fresh and it is always alive. 
And certainly the church has been a creative force for good and innovation throughout history. But we remind ourselves every time we come to this table that we are built on something ancient and beautiful. We remind ourselves that the God who created is still the God who creates. It's not new. It's just fresh. The God who loved is still the God who loves. The God who parted the Red Sea, who healed the blind man, who stopped the woman's bleeding after 12 years of suffering. He is still the God who moves in power and might for the glory of his name and for the joy of his people. Amen? And every time we celebrate this table, we are reminded that we are part of not just this church, but the church. The church. And so I don't know about you, but it's a little bit hot in here tonight. You should have felt it at the 1045. But there's something sadistic about me that loves that. Because you do know that all around the globe, there are followers of Jesus who do not worship in an air-conditioned building. That today, there are followers of Jesus all around the world. Some of them are gathering together in underground churches in China where they worship in fear of their life. That there are some in the bush in Africa who are gathering. They've never been in an air-conditioned building, literally ever. And yet they're declaring Jesus is Lord. They're gathered around their own version of his body and his blood. There are believers in the Middle East right now who are fighting literally for their life and they are pausing to worship and to celebrate the bread and the cup together. And every time we come together, we're reminded of that we are part of a shared story, not just in this room, but all around the globe. And not just living today, but we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses of people who have gone before us. And I don't know about you, but when we go to this table... And I'm reminded of that story. I'm also reminded of the fact that I'm not the first person to struggle. I'm not the first person to wrestle. Like, God, what does it look like to to be a sinner and a saint? I'm not the first person to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And then to wonder, God, what does that actually look like? And what would that mean? And how is your kingdom breaking through in my life, in my family, in my neighborhood? I'm not the first and I won't be the last. We are part of a shared story, friends. Every time we come to the table, we're reminded of it. But here's the second thing Paul points out. What he had, what he received, he delivered. He says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now this language was well-known, it looks like, in the early church. But on the first night that Jesus took this bread and took the cup and passed them around, it was new. It was different. It was out of the ordinary. Because on that night, they were celebrating the, anybody know? Passover, right, the Passover meal. And you need to know a little bit about the Passover to know and have some context about what Jesus says and why he says it. The Passover was the Israelites' It was their feast recognizing God's deliverance from slavery. 
the nation of Israel enslaved for 400 years in Egypt and God had rescued them and redeemed them and Passover was their way of remembering his deliverance. So for a thousand plus years, they would gather together and they would celebrate this meal. And the meal revolved around a liturgy that was based on Exodus chapter six, verses five through seven. And it was based around four cups that would be passed around the table. The first cup was, I will bring you out. It was a promise of God's sanctification. What's really interesting is that after that cup was passed around, the host would then go around and wash the hands of the people who were celebrating the meal at their house. Well, Jesus, after that cup goes around, does what? Washes their feet, right? The second cup, the second cup, they would say, I will deliver you from slavery. And it was during this cup, after the second cup, they would break bread and they would pass the bread around. And it was after the second cup that Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. After that, they would eat the rest of the meal, the lamb, etc. And then they would get to the third cup. And the third cup, after the, they drank that, they would say, I will redeem you. It was God's promise that he would redeem his people. He would buy them back and he would set them free. It was at the third cup that Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, which is made in my blood. Matthew would record that it, that covenant is the forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of Jesus. And then the final cup was, I will take you as my people. Now you have to imagine that the people of God have been celebrating this meal in this way for a thousand plus years. And in one night, Jesus takes this meal, hijacks it and says, ultimately this meal is pointing towards me. Can you imagine the audacity? That kind of thing could get you killed, right? This is ultimately about me. And what he's saying is not that the Exodus was unimportant, but just that it was an archetype pointing to a deeper reality that ultimately the deliverance that we are all looking for is not deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but deliverance from the slavery of sin. And Jesus is saying in this moment, I have purchased it, will purchase it with my blood shed on the cross and my body given for you. See, Jesus turns this meal, this Passover meal into a declaration of his forgiveness of people like you and me who are in desperate need. Somebody say amen. In the church, we often refer to this theologically as substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died in our place for our sins. He died for us, but he also died as us. He takes on his shoulders the punishment that we rightfully deserved for sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. He takes that on himself that we might receive from him his life. Isaiah prophesied that this is what Messiah would do. In Isaiah 53, he wrote, surely he has borne our griefs. He took them on his shoulders. He carried our sorrows, yet we have seen him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are 
healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when he says, my body given for you, my blood shed for you, he's saying, I'm taking all of your shame, all of your sin, all of your guilt, I'm taking it on me and I am burying it in the ground and I am walking out with new life in my hands. Friends, this is our story. This is our song. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. See, it's at his table that we remember we share a shared, we have a shared sacrifice. That all of us coming to the table are going, me too. That he died for me too. And there's no sense of pride or superiority that we bring to the table with us, you guys. It's what unites us. None of us comes to the communion table going, well, I'm sort of a big deal. I've stuck to dismount. I'm, per- I, I, I've, I'm perfect. I, I've, I've arrived. I don't need a savior. No, no, no. We come low to the table or we don't come at all. We come in need or we don't come at all. We come as one beggar showing another beggar where they can find bread. That's how we come. And we come remembering that his grace is sufficient for us on our darkest moment, that his blood has covered us, he has forgiven us, he has washed us clean. We are holy and we are righteous and we are found in him. No pride, no superiority, all of that dies at the table. And we remember, friends, we remember that we don't take communion. We receive communion. We receive it. It's not something that we take, as if to say, it's not something that we earn or that we get to grab for. We receive it. I love what Eugene Peterson wrote when he said, receiving communion is rooted deep in the soil of not doing. When we take of this bread and drink of this cup, we are reminded that we are holy and fully at the mercy of the grace of God. And that he is wholly and completely sufficient for every one of our needs. So in light of that, Paul continues to write. Because I don't think he wants the church to get the wrong idea. And to start to sort of think that maybe, just maybe, because grace abounds, well then sin can abound all the more. And so in verse 27, listen to what he wrote. He said, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, quick time out. Paul's point is not that we have to be worthy in order to come to the table. We just said, none of us are worthy. All of us needed a sacrifice to be made right with God. Amen? And I make a point out of this because in some traditions that's been twisted and you've got to be worthy in order to come to the table. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that when you come to the table, make sure you give Jesus the worth that he rightfully deserves. That's what it means to take the cup in a worthy manner, to give Jesus the worth that he deserves. I mean, think about the context. 
The church in Corinth, some are getting drunk while they're celebrating communion, right? And he's going, that's not right. That's not good. And he's trying to correct them. And what he wants to do is he wants to show them and he wants to show us that there needs to be a sense of introspection when we come to the table. That's why he said, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And I love this. I love this because we come to the table with a sense of shared examination. We're reminding ourselves on one hand, Jesus is our sufficient sacrifice. We are justified and made right by him and him alone. Amen. And we're saying to one another, we haven't arrived yet. We haven't been made perfect. We're struggling, sometimes limping and doubting our way along. That's our story also, isn't it? So there are times when just saying examine yourself can be a bit ambiguous and a little bit slippery. And so Paul wants to dig in a little bit and show us what, tell us what he really means by that. Here's what he said. For if anybody eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, what does it mean to discern the body? Most scholars would say that discerning the body means that we need to pay attention to others in the body of Christ. That the body he's referring to here is the church, that Christ's body. And so to discern the body is to ask some questions of ourselves when we come to this table. Questions like, is there anybody in the church, another brother or sister that I'm at odds with that I need to make things right? Are there any ways that as much as it depends on me, I need to live at peace with all people and I'm not leaning into that? Is there anybody that I need to ask for forgiveness from who I've wronged? Is there anybody that I need to say back to them, I forgive you? And we can move forward in unity together. See, consistent throughout the scriptures is a recognition that our worship certainly is vertical. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second commandment is like it, love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our worship is vertical, but it's also horizontal. And at the table, we commit to restoring relationships that are broken. That's what it means to discern the body. Now, some of you are going, okay, but Paul's in verse 30. What are you going to do with that? Hmm? That is why, no, if nobody's wondering, I'll just skip it, okay? <laughs> that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Like, what do you do with a passage like that? You skip it. That is what we do. We're just going to move on, okay? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a bit troubling though, isn't it? I mean, let's, let's really read this. Let's try to take it in. Let's wrestle with it. And weak and ill, sick and died are all words that are used of our physical bodies. And so some commentators want to say this is just a spiritual sickness and a spiritual death that's come about because they're practicing communion in a quote-unquote unworthy manner. And I just want to say, I wish I could tell you that I think that's what the text says, but I don't think it's what the text says. And so you may be asking me, so Paulson, are you saying that people were literally getting physically sick and ill and dying, some of them, because of the way that they were celebrating the table? 
And I would say back to you, I think that's what Paul is writing here. And here's the deal, you guys. We tend to think of our cognitive, physical, emotional, and spiritual selves as all being sort of disconnected parts of the whole. The scriptures do not view us that way. We, we are integrated beings. Um, and I think we know this. We just very rarely apply that to our quote-unquote spiritual life also. Uh, um, when I was teaching up in Oregon, I had this uh, pain that was in my neck and then this sort of like burning and numb sensation that was sort of moving up and down my neck. This isn't uncommon for me. This happens from time to time. And um, so I made an appointment for when I got back and I went last week and I had some blood drawn and my doctor asked me a bunch of questions and they ran a bunch of tests and he came back and he said, um, Ryan, I don't see anything physically that's wrong. He goes, you're just stressed out. And I'm like, so stress is making my neck hurt? And he goes, evidently, evidently. Now here's the deal. I'm not telling you that because I want your remedies. Please don't email them to me. Um, thank you, I appreciate them. But I tell you that to say it's all connected. And if our emotions can affect us physically, which we all know they can, why wouldn't spirituality affect our physical bodies as well? And Paul says, it does, it does. And so we pay attention to the way that our relationships are functioning, and then we commit to repairing where they've gone awry. And then second, he says, and if we judged ourselves truly, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here's the bad news. Bad news first and then good news, okay? Bad news is every time we come to the table, we are judged. Either we will judge ourselves or God will judge us, meaning he will shine a glorious light on our sin so that he can call us out of darkness into light. Every time we come to the table, this is his intention, that at the table, we would open ourselves to receive God's gracious judgment and repent in light of his discipline. And it's a fatherly discipline. It's a loving discipline. It's a discipline that desires better for us, that says, I'm unwilling to let you keep going down that road of destruction. And just remember, as Paul said, this is not about condemnation. If you sense condemnation at the table as a follower of Jesus, that is not from God. That is not from God. That's from the enemy. What God wants to do is convict that he might lead us forward into life and righteousness. So we open our lives up to him and say, search me, O God, and know me. Know my thoughts. Know my intentions. Point out whatever way is evil within me. And then lead me in the way of everlasting life. Yeah, it's at the communion table that hopefully, as we hold the bread and we hold the cup, we sense the good shepherd's crook around our neck, pulling us gently closer and closer back to him. Because we confess and we repent and we remember that his sacrifice is sufficient for us. Amen? I intentionally skipped verse 26. And I want to hit it before we land the plane here. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death. Say this with me, church, until he comes. From the very beginning, the church has said, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. He will come again. But as the book of Hebrews says, he will not come to bear sins. He's already done that. He will come to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. And every time we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we remember that we are a people in waiting. We are waiting for our king to return, for him to set up in full display the kingdom that he inaugurated when he came, died, and rose the very first time. We are reminded that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things will pass away, and behold, the new will come. Every time we celebrate the table, we remember that we have a shared future. And I don't know about you, but I love the fact that we get to imagine our future every time we eat of this bread and drink of this cup. Because so many times throughout the scriptures, our future is described as a feast. I mean, you you read Isaiah chapter 25, and we're told eternity is akin to rich food and well-aged wine. We read Matthew 22, and it's a wedding feast, and all are invited and clothed in righteousness. Anybody who trusts Jesus, clothed and ready for the party. In Revelation chapter 19, we are told that we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, when we eat this quote-unquote meal, we are reminded that our eternity is sealed, hope is secure, and one day, Jesus will return. So I don't know all the things that divide us, but I am confident that the things that unite us, a shared story, a shared sacrifice, a shared examination where we agree we're all on a journey together, and a shared future, I don't know all the things that divide us, but I am confident that the things that unite us are stronger than any of those. Amen. Here's how Paul ends, and it's how I'll end too. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. How's that for a practical instruction? Like, don't just rush on and do your own thing. But I think he would say to us, pay attention to one another. It's one of the reasons that when we celebrate communion, I encourage you to look down the aisle to see if there's anybody struggling with these prepackaged COVID-friendly communion elements because they can be a bit of a challenge, right? But I think Paul would encourage us to do the exact same thing. Wait for one another. Be attentive to one another. Look for people that are on the outskirts and say that there's a place closer, there's a spot near you that they're invited to sit in. Pay attention to the way that the body is functioning and then step into places where there is a need. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give you directions when I come. And I think what Paul's saying is simply this. If we want the feast we must also welcome the family. That we don't get all the benefits of Christ without being a part of his body, without being a part of the church. Friends, this is where the good stuff happens. 
where we learn to forgive, where we practice the one another's, where we grow in our faith and we don't celebrate communion in a closet all alone and all by ourselves. We celebrate community, communion together as a community. We eat the bread together, we drink the cup together because we are reminded that we are a family together and when we feast together, we become the kind of family that Jesus imagined his church becoming. And probably none of us will ever celebrate communion on the moon. I'm gonna go out on the limb there. But we will receive communion in this room. And so let's allow it to form us. Let's allow it to shape us into the kind of people who reflect the sun, capital S-O-N's light and love and glory to all those around. Amen. Let's pray and get ready to go to his table. Let me just encourage you to put your things away. Prepare us, O oh Lord to meet with you, to participate with you, to be examined by you, to confess before you, to be reminded that we're part of a much bigger story, a shared sacrifice, and a purchased future. Prepare us, we pray. Amen. Communion is um, something that followers of Jesus has done for a few thousand years, as we said. And I just want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to just put the elements down and maybe just let this moment be one more of reflection for you than participation. But, but... If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I would say you are here tonight to put your faith in him, to receive his sacrifice, to put your faith back in him. You can just simply say, Jesus, I trust that you love me, that you're for me, that you died for me, and that by your blood, I am forgiven. You can tell him, I confess that I'm a sinner in need of grace, and I am confident that you are a gracious savior. Redeem me, save me. You are my Lord and I wanna be your disciple and follow after you. That's the way we've become his. And so if you say some sort of prayer like that, your heart to his, he would say you are one of his children. So let's get ready to go to the table. Would you just take some time, you and God? Is there anything broken in your relationships that you need to commit to fixing as much as it depends on you? And is there any sin in your life that Jesus would shine a light on and invite you to repent and confess and move towards life? Take a moment before him. on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he gathered his disciples around the table 
and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. same way after supper he took the cup the third cup the cup that they would say I will redeem you after he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant which is made in my blood do this in remembrance of me So Lord, we do, we remember and we proclaim your death until you come again. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.